was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now later in Jesus' life, when he was uh, approaching John the Baptist to be baptized of him in the Jordan River, we know that at that time the Holy Spirit came on him in bodily shape as a dove. And there was a voice from heaven that, that, uh, that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John said when he saw Jesus coming, Behold the Lamb of the world which taketh away the sins of the world. So we would have to understand that saving the, sin, saving the world from their sins or saving the people from their sins is the same thing or is the equivalent of taking away the sin of the world. Now Jesus, depending on how people count, and there's a lot of ways, different ways to count, but Jesus fulfilled well over a hundred prophecies from the Old Testament. The virgin birth is one of them, one of the main ones in, in my estimation. But it would make sense that if Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, he would also come to fulfill the Old Testament types. The things that were given to Israel under the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant were given to show what Jesus would do. They were temporary fixes. They were temporary solutions to an eternal problem. But Jesus would solve the problem once and for all, specifically, as the angel told Joseph in the dream, he would save the world, save the people from their sins by taking them away. Now we know at age 12, when Jesus was left behind, when his family traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, you remember the story about how they thought he was with the rest of the company that was traveling together. But after three days, they figured out he wasn't in the group. So they went back to Jerusalem found him sitting in the temple talking with the, the rabbis and the religious leaders. He was asking them questions they couldn't answer, the Bible says. That must have been fun. And then he was answering questions that they didn't know the answers to apart from his answer. And they marveled at him. Now when Jesus' family found him, when his mother and father found him, he responds in a real curious way. He said, how is it that you looked for me? Now, I don't know if that means you should have just gone on home. I'd come when I was ready. Or if that means, why did you not know where I was? Either way seems to fit in one respect. But Jesus said, how is it that you, didn't, that you sought for me? Know ye not that I must be about my father's business. So at age 12, at least by age 12, Jesus understood his purpose on the earth. Well, if the purpose that the angel identified, first and foremost, to Joseph, to satisfy his fears to take Mary unto his wife, was that he would save the people from his sins, then fulfilling the Old Testament type of the sin offering had to have been first and foremost in Jesus' mind. Had to have been. Now turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 6. It fascinates me. It fascinates not the right word. It 
it, um, it's a shocking thing to me. It's a humbling thing to me. It's an awesome thing to me. That Jesus went through every day of his life knowing that he was going to take away the sin of the world. I say every day of his life. We don't know exactly when that occurred. We would assume that it's included in the Father's business by age 12. At least I would. But certainly by the time he was anointed of the Holy Ghost at age 30, he knew specifically what he was to do and how he was to do it. Now, I don't know if that revelation came all at once at some point in time of his life or if it was progressive revelation that he gained over a period of time. But we do know this. We know that by the time he entered his ministry, he had to have known what the Old Testament type of the sin offering was about and what it meant for him. So, unfortunately, Jesus knew, and I think in some respects that's why he drew back from parts of it, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat great drops of blood. I'll talk more about that as we go, maybe. But unfortunately, the church doesn't know what it means. The church has come up with its own ideas. But none of those ideas match Jesus' apprehension or Jesus' revulsion by the aspects, all the aspects involved in becoming the sin offering. Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. Well, if Jesus is going to take the sins away from the people or save the people from their sins, then he's going to have to be the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. I want you to notice that, folks. Notice the sin offering is holy. There's never a point in time where the sin offering stops being holy. Or ceases to be holy. The priest that offereth for sin shall eat it. The word eat is really a poor translation here. It means consume, devour, or burn. You'll see in verse 30 that the priest is not supposed to eat it. So it must mean burned. Devoured or consumed through burning. The priest that offer it shall consume it. Burn it. In the holy place shall it be consumed or burned. In the court of the tabernacle of the congregation. In other words, it's to be burned on the, burned off, on the altar where the fire is. Whatsoever shall touch the flesh shall, thereof shall be holy. Please notice that. The sin offering continues to be holy. Anything that touches it or comes in contact with it is holy. That's how holy the sin offering is. Whatsoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. And when there is sprinkled of the blood thereof upon any garment, thou shalt wash that whereon it was sprinkled in the holy place. But the earthen vessel, please notice this, but the earthen vessel wherein it is sodden, the word sodden means to boil, to roast, or to bake. Well, we know it's to be burned, so it's talking about a roasting pan of some type. The earthen vessel wherein it is roasted shall be broken. That's Jesus' body. And if it be roasted or burned in a brazen pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water. And all the males of the priests shall eat thereof, consume, devour, burn thereof. It is most holy. Notice verse 30. And no sin offering whereof 
Any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile with all in the holy place shall be eaten. So these other verses where the word eat is translated, or the word is translated into the word eat, can't be to eat as we know of. No sin offering shall be eaten, it shall be burned in the fire. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter, I mean, uh, where am I? Leviticus, sorry. Leviticus chapter 16. Some people have a hard time with accepting that Jesus died spiritually because they think that, or the, the, I should say it this way. Some people have a hard time accepting that Jesus became sin, literally became sin, because in their mind that would mean that he became a sinner or that he became unholy. But folks, notice the Old Testament type of the sin offering, which is the only thing we have to go by to understand what Jesus did for us by taking away our sins. Under the Old Covenant, the Day of Atonement, the sin offering that he's talking about and referencing in these chapters is to be offered once a year, and it covered over the sins of the people. It was a temporary fix, but it wasn't a permanent fix. Jesus came to be the permanent solution for an etern the eternal problem of spiritual death, our separation from God, which makes us sinners. Some people have a hard time accepting that Jesus was made to be sin for us because they think, and, and I guess it's through religious teaching, but they think that that means that Jesus somehow or at some point became unholy. And he never did. He never did. And I want to make sure that, that nobody thinks that we're saying that Jesus dying spiritually means he became unholy. He did not. The sin offering is always holy. But that's not the old, only Old Testament time. Leviticus chapter 16. Let's start reading... Uh, Let's start reading in verse 5. It tells us what Aaron was instructed to do. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids for the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now the, the, the ram or the bullock was the sin offering, the burnt offering for Aaron to make him clean, to, to qualify to offer the sin offering for the people. Please notice there are two goats, two live goats, or two lambs, we might say. Notice there are two lambs that are involved in the sin offering for the people of Israel. It's not a complete offering unless you have both. Now, some people want to accept one half of what Jesus did for us, but not the other. But without both, it's not a complete offering. Without both, Jesus didn't fulfill the Old Testament type. Can you see that? He shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two lambs or kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. That's the one for Aaron. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now I want you to understand something. Both of these goats are equal in standing or in worthiness 
they both qualify to be the sin offering which is holy. It's only by the casting of the lots that one is chosen over the other. The one that's chosen for the Lord, that means the one is chosen as the sin offering. The other is chosen as the scapegoat. Now we look at Jesus and his work on the cross as the sin offering. And, it's, and that's right. But unless we recognize the work of the other goat, the scapegoat, then we don't understand what Jesus was concerned about in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, folks, there was something that caused Jesus to draw back. Jesus, who said before Lazarus' tomb, I thank you, Father, that you have heard me and that you always hear me. Well, that means anything he prayed would have come to pass. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed this. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, was it possible? Sure. With God, all things are possible. He could have stopped right there. He could have said, well, this has been a nice ride, but I'm done. But then he added this word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Not my will, but thy will be done. Now, the Bible tells us that when he was praying these things, he was sweating great drops of blood, which medical science tells us is an extremely rare condition. And there, uh, there has been only one confirmed case that I know of when anybody has sweat great drops of blood. And it's always brought on by supernatural stress. There's only one case where anybody's ever survived that. Only one. You know the one that survived? Jesus. Every other time where somebody has come under such great stress where the blood squeezes out through the capillaries, through the skin, has brought on death. We've got a Bible account that says Jesus survived it. Now, if it's brought on by such great stress, what's he under such great stress about? Well, the easy answer is, well, Pastor Mike, he's rejecting the shame of the cross and the the pain and suffering thereof. But do you realize Jesus didn't suffer on the cross at the hands of man any worse than the two thieves did that were crucified on his right and his left? And do you realize that Jesus spent less time on the cross before his body expired than the two thieves did? It was such a short time that Pilate was amazed when somebody came to him and asked for his body. He said, is he dead already? Well, doesn't that indicate that he died quicker than most people die on the cross? It was a matter of just a few hours. Is Jesus such a weakling? After having withstood all the works of the enemy and dominated Satan's works in every respect, is he such a weakling that he's rejecting a few hours of pain and suffering on the cross? I don't think so. There's got to be something else. Folks, in my opinion, and you judge this for yourself, you know why I say that, don't you? When I say this is my opinion and you judge it for yourself, I was always offended by people that told me this is the way it is no matter what you think. Now, there's some things about the Bible that that's just true. Sin is sin no matter what you think. You have a right to choose whether or not you're going to act on what the Bible says about sin, but you don't have the, you don't have the right to make up your own definition of it. But when I say, this is my opinion, you judge it for yourself. 
especially on matters like this. I'm telling you, this is the way it is. I want you to see it for yourself. Because I really do want you to see this for yourself. I don't want you to see it or accept it or even think, well, what does he know? Because I'm saying that this is the way it is. The way that it is when seen by revelation makes all the difference in who you will be in this life. It makes all the difference in the world. Therefore, in my opinion, you judge this for yourself. Jesus is not rejecting or withdrawing or shunning the work as the sin offering. He's concerned about the work as a scapegoat. Back to Leviticus 16. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to the scapegoat, to be the scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and let him go into the, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. That tells us some things about what Aaron's supposed to do to cleanse himself and to purify the holy place. Skip down with me to verse 18. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it. Purified, in other words. And he shall take the blood of the bullock, that's the one that he sacrificed for himself and for his family, and of the blood of the goat, that's the sin offering, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Now folks, you, you need to understand the type here too. The cleansing of the holy place is the equivalent of the recreated human spirit. The holy place, the place where God dwells is the spirit of man. So the blood of Jesus did a work to cleanse you spiritually. When we say we're washed in the blood of Jesus, that's what it means. It means our spirits have been made new by holy, sin, untouched, spotless blood. The blood of the sin offering. And when he has made an end, verse 20, when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now I want you to understand something. The Bible gives very, very little instruction about the sin offering. It just says it's a spot, uh, um, a lamb without blemish. It tells us it's one of the two sacrifices to be made on that day. But it just tells us that the blood is to be offered in the same way that the bullock is, which is made for Aaron and his family. We understand that it brings the death. Can't shed blood without the death. Of the sin offering. But from that point on. That's all it tells us about it. Then it tells us what to do with the live goat. Now here's the point I want you to, to see. And that is. And I'll say it again. A complete sacrifice. A sacrifice of the Old Testament. That is fulfilled in the work of Jesus. On an eternal position. Or in an eternal state, rather than just a temporary one as the Old Testament was, had to have two different 
operations or two halves. There had to be two lambs involved. The first one died, the second one lived. The first one died, the second one lived. Now we don't know anything about the second one until after the first one dies. And I want you to notice the progression. The sin offering and the blood of the sin offering is offered for an atonement for the people upon that which represents your spirit. An atonement, a sacrifice. In Jesus' case, an eternal sacrifice. Once and for all. For your spirit to be made new and righteous. Then we find out about the scapegoat. If we just leave Jesus on the cross... And that's all we understand about what he did in dying for our sins. Or if we adopt the idea that after Jesus' death, he went to Abraham's bosom. Then we're ignoring the work of the scapegoat. And we're denying, whether we intend to or not, we're denying that Jesus was the complete sacrifice for man. In other words, even under the Old Testament type, the atonement, the temporary solution for sin was not fulfilled unless both of these lambs did their work. Here's what Jesus drew back from. Verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now notice what the Bible is telling us. The Bible is telling us that the sins have not been borne by the, the sin offering. The sin offering restored man... To a place where God could bless him. But, in, but didn't do anything about the sins itself. It cleansed man. It didn't bear away the sins. That had to be done and could only be done by the, the scapegoat. He shall bear away the iniquities of the people into a land not inhabited. Let me read to you from Isaiah 53. Several of the prophets and even the psalmists went back and forth into some things that Jesus would suffer. Isaiah chapter 53. Um, well, let's read verse 8. I don't want to read the whole thing. I may come back later in the service and read the whole thing. But verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? Now, I want you to notice the judgment, the word judgment. There was a place where Jesus was in prison. Because of the judgment of the world. The Bible says the, sin that so, the soul that sinneth shall die. See folks if we just leave Jesus on the cross. And forgive me for going over this again and again. But there's, it's so important. I believe it's even more important than I used to think. The more I study this. The more I meditate on this. The more important it gets to me. If we just leave Jesus on the cross. Sins have not been paid for. 
Because Jesus on the cross is fulfilling the sin offering. Which cleanses man but doesn't do anything about the original problem of sin. If we leave Jesus on the cross, if your salvation is based on just Jesus on the cross, then somebody still has to die for your sins. Jesus died for the cleansing of your spirit. That doesn't do anything about the original problem of sin. It doesn't do anything about the fact that spiritual death passed upon all men through Adam's transgression. Something has to be done for that. Somebody had to die. The whole world is in sin, is in darkness. Therefore, the whole world, without exception, no matter how good somebody's been, no matter how well they tried to be, their intentions or anything else, every person that's been on, ever been born into this earth is worthy of death. Not worthy of death because of their own action. They're worthy of death because... They were made spiritually dead through Adam's sin. Somebody has to pay that price. Somebody has to be the sacrifice. Somebody has to bear the judgment for mankind. Or else you have to bear it yourself after you die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That doesn't just mean you're the wages of your personal sin. It means the wages of spiritual death. That was passed upon all men according to the scriptures. Somebody's got to pay that. Somebody has to die. And we think of dying as the expiration of life. We think that Jesus died on the cross and that's all there is to it. But we're right there in Isaiah 53. I want you to see something else that Isaiah said. Verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Look that word death up and you'll find out it's in the plural. It means multiple deaths. Certainly more than one. Can't be plural unless it's more than one. What death did Jesus die? He died a physical death. And if he took away the sin of the world, he died a spiritual death. Otherwise, that sin still has to be paid for. Back to verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? Here's the part I want you to see this relative to the scapegoat. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He was cut off from the land of the living. Now there's, a, there's a, two times in Jesus' ministry that I want to refer to real quickly. One is in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus who died. Jesus starts off this. Most people think it's a parable, but it's not. Can't be. Jesus said there was a certain rich man and a certain man named Lazarus. You can't use the word certain in a parable. Because a parable is something that represents something else. For example, you could say the kingdom of God is like a tree. Starts off from a small seed and it grows big and the birds of the air build their nests there. Well, that's a parable because something is like something else. But if you're going to use the word certain, then he's saying there was a real man named Lazarus who died and a real rich man who died. The Bible tells us about the rich man went to hell. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. It tells us that in, the, 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 in hell, the rich man lift up his eyes being in torment 
and saw Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom. And he made a request of Abraham to have Lazarus dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue, for he was tormented by the flame. Now I want you to know that both people have died physically. Both the rich man and Lazarus are physically dead, but they don't cease to exist. They're both alive. They both exist. I hate to use the word alive because the rich man wasn't alive. Because death in its strictest sense means separation from God. Abraham and those in Abraham's bosom were comforted, waiting for the coming of Jesus. The rich man was paying the price for his own sin for not following the law of Moses. And he was in torment. Now, the second time that I want to refer to in Jesus' ministry was when the Pharisees questioned him about Abraham and Isaac and, and, and so forth. Actually, their, their original question was about somebody that dies and what happens to their wife and the brother. You remember the story? They said, if one guy dies and doesn't have any children, his brother takes him to wife and then he dies and wind up being seven brothers and they all took the same woman to their wife. The question was, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? I'm guessing that woman wants to get away from that family. <laughs> Nevertheless, you judge that for yourself. But Jesus answers the question. He says, it's not the way it works in the resurrection. There's neither marriage nor giving of marriage. But then he said this. He said, but God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, God is the God of the living. Now, that means that Abraham and those in Abraham's bosom, which would include Isaac and Jacob, are still considered by Jesus and therefore considered by God to be living. Notice again in Isaiah 53, in verse 8, it says, He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Here's a reference or a hint. Can't build a doctrine off of it. But here's a hint that Abraham's bosom could not have been Jesus' final destination. He was cut off from the land of the living. Well, if Jesus himself referred to those in Abraham's bosom while he was here on the earth, if he referred to those in Abraham's bosom as those in the land of the living, he would certainly know Isaiah 53 when he gave the answers to the Pharisees. See, folks, it's not physical death. It's not even going to Abraham's bosom that paid the price for sin. It's the judgment that fell on the scapegoat. Back to Leviticus 16, verse 21 again, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them. Notice in the Old Testament there was a transference of sin. There was a transference of sin. The Old Testament priests, Aaron and all those that followed him, would on the day of atonement take the live goat after the sin offering had been offered, after the blood of the sin offering had been put out in the, in the 
holy place as it was directed to do. Now the live goat has the high priest put his hands on them, both hands, and declare over him all the iniquities and the transgressions and the sins of the people, putting them on the goat. The Old Testament type is that something else other than, than the individual can have the price paid for their sin. Now, under the Old Covenant, it was a temporary fix. But for us, it's an eternal fix. Now, here's a problem that some people have with the Scripture over in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, here's Jesus being made sin, just like the, the Old Testament scapegoat was made sin as a substitute for the people. Jesus was your substitute. But the work of the scapegoat could not happen, could not begin until after the sin offering had died. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross and said, It is finished? What was finished? Certainly not the sacrifice. The sin offering was finished, but not the work of the scapegoat. What was finished? I believe he's saying the Old Testament has been fulfilled. I believe he's saying everything that has been done that needs to be done on the earth to pay the price for sin. To fulfill the, God, the commandment of God and the justice of God to set man free. Now, if that was the end of the story, why the three days for the resurrection? If that was it, if Jesus on the cross is the end of the story, why did Jesus not just declare, it is written, or it is finished, excuse me, it's finished, it's done, darkness cover the face of the earth, the earthquake take place and tear the veil of the temple in two from top to bottom, Everybody see the thunder and the lightning or whatever other signs and wonders and characteristics were associated with it. And then Jesus come down off the cross. Wouldn't that have been a Hollywood scene? Float down from the cross. Look the Roman soldiers in the eye and say, I'm back. Would that not have made a more spectacular announcement? as to Jesus being the Son of God than even the resurrection? The resurrection, by and large, happened in secret, hidden from view. There were a couple of guys that saw it. They fell on the ground like dead men. But then they were paid to keep their mouth shut. Why didn't it happen that way? Why didn't it happen with great fanfare and great evidence because the work of sin being paid for wasn't yet finished only the part that could take place on the earth now the Bible tells us that the judgment would fall on the scapegoat in the wilderness the fit man a qualified man would lead the scapegoat out into the wilderness and the judgment of God would fall upon him out there that was unseen judgment. It was forbidden for anybody to stop and hang around to see what happened to the scapegoat. I'm sure there were times where a wild beast tore into the goat or the lamb and took its life. 
I'm sure there were other times where the lamb just starved to death. And that was the end of it. But there was no record, no intimation of any type, what would or did happen to the scapegoat in the wilderness except that the judgment of God fell upon him. Turn with me over to Psalm 88. Psalm 88, whoever is the psalmist, it says it's for the sons of Korah. Whoever it was, whoever that means it was that was the author of this, got over into some of the suffering of Jesus in hell. As I said, the Bible is very clear, the wages of sin is death. That means even though Jesus paid the price as the sin offering for your personal sins. If the price for the original sin, the spiritual death that passed upon all men has not yet been paid for, then you still have to pay it. Jesus didn't have to pay it. He avoided the spiritual death that came upon man through Adam. That's what the virgin birth is all about. But it still has to be paid if it's not yet been paid. I would submit to you that Jesus paid it. Verse 1. O Lord my God, or the Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee, incline thine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh into the grave. This uh, phrase, draweth nigh into the grave, literally means I am satiated with evils. Consumed with evils. Now, what condition could the psalmist be talking about in his own personal life that would satisfy that statement? I am satiated with evils. He's not saying I've done wrong. He's not saying, oh, Lord, forgive me, I've messed up. He's not saying, Lord, I've confessed my sin before you. He's saying I'm satiated, I'm saturated, and consumed with evils. He's not talking about himself, folks. He's talking about Jesus as the scapegoat. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. The word pit is the word sheol, the kingdom of death. I am as a man that hath no strength. Hath no strength literally means without God. I am as a man without God. Free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the, lie in the grave. Now notice this phrase, free among the dead. If Jesus referred to the, those in Abraham's bosom, as the living did Jesus just not know what the Holy Ghost referred to things in the Old Testament was he careless with his words and used words that would mean something other than what they meant in the Old Testament I don't believe so he said I'm free among the dead those cut off from God those in the lowest part of hell where the rich man was when he looked over and saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom
free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Remember one of the last things Jesus said, not the last thing, but one of the last things Jesus said just before he said it's finished. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. What's he saying? Remember when Jesus was on the earth, he said, no man takes my life from me. I can lay it down and I can take it back up again. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore on the cross. There came a point where Jesus was on the cross. We know that in the early part of the, the cross experience, he said, I could call for legions of angels to get me down here from here if I wanted to. But at the end, when he's committed himself to be the offering, the eternal offering for sin, meaning the sin offering and the scapegoat, he comes to the place where it's not his choice any longer. He says, Father, I commend my hands into your spirit. I'm completely submitted now unto your will without power or authority of my own anymore. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, verse 6, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard. The word hard means fully. Thy wrath lieth fully upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves or breakers. Now let me ask you a question. This is painting the picture for us where the, the, the wrath of God is coming upon Jesus in waves, wave after wave after wave, pounded, crushed, satiated, with evils as the judgment for mankind not because he did anything on his own but because he was willing to lay down his life for you and me does that sound like what Luke 16 refers to about the rich man in hell the rich man in hell was in torment but all he asked Abraham for was for Lazarus to come and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue he didn't ask for relief from the waves or the breakers or the wrath of God pounding him wave after wave after wave. Did he? It sounds like Jesus is dying a horrible death. He's experiencing horrors that are beyond just those that are in hell. Let me tell you how far out I am on this stuff, folks. I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 20. We're coming back to Psalm 88. So you don't have to turn here if you don't want to. But Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. It talks about the judgment of God before the great white throne. It concludes the judgment by saying, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The Bible does not say that hell is the second death. If Jesus died more than one death... I believe, and I can't find any scriptural evidence to refute this. If you've got some, be sure and share it with me. I can't find any scriptural evidence to refute the possibility. I'm not willing to say it for certainty yet. But I can see the possibility that Jesus is not in the lowest pit of hell. He's in the lake of fire. Because the wrath of God is coming fully upon him. Wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. That's not even close to the description Jesus gives us of the rich man in hell. Not even close. If they're dying the same death, wouldn't they be experiencing the same things? 
That's how far I, I that's how far out I am on this stuff. I don't believe Jesus just went into the lower part of hell. I believe he experienced a second death. Now I could be wrong on that. But I can't find any scriptural evidence to refute it. That is just my idea. I'm not saying this for certainty. Back to Psalm 88. Thy wrath lieth fully upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy breakers, wave after wave of your wrath. Thou hast put me away, put away mine acquaintance far from me. Now, who's his acquaintance? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit was not in Jesus or upon him in any form when he was operating as a scapegoat. He was totally alone. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up and I cannot come forth. Please notice that. I cannot come forth. If the Bible means what it says, then that tells us that Jesus is totally at the mercy of the wrath of God in order to pay the price for sin. He cannot say, okay, this is enough. He cannot say, Father, deliver me. He cannot say, Holy Spirit, manifest your power to deliver me from this place. He's totally submitted. He's totally surrendered to spiritual death. He can't get out if he wants to. Now, I can't make that statement without stopping long enough to say, what in the world would make Jesus willing to do that if not his great love for you? Now, I like you. And I'm not sure I'd be willing to do that. Jesus, on the other hand, knew what the plan of God was. He told his disciples beforehand, before he ever went to Jerusalem where he was taken captive and crucified, that he was going to be captive. He's going to be crucified and he's going to raise again the third day. Jesus knew what the plan of God was for this from the beginning. But that didn't keep him from drawing back. He didn't say in the Garden of Gethsemane, boy, those are going to be a tough three days, Lord. He sweat great drops of blood. i got to tell you something. I've asked the Lord to show me, give me a glimpse of the horror that Jesus experienced. And he won't do it. He just won't do it. And I'm sure it's for my benefit and for my well-being that he wouldn't. Something like that might scare a person literally to death. It was certainly enough for Jesus to draw back from. It's certainly something that we could re- should recognize what he paid for. Verse 9. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily. That means more than one day upon thee. Speaking of the three days. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Oh, thank God he did. Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Thank God he did. 
Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? That's another thing that goes back to the rich man and Lazarus story. If the rich man had been in darkness in hell, he wouldn't have been able to see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Would he? The Bible gives us hints. But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee or precede thee. Lord, why castest off thy my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? Well, the answer is easy. Because he's been made sin. God can't look upon sin. I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. The word terrors is the word horror. While I suffer thy horrors, I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors, same word, horrors, have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. It goes back to the wave after wave of God's wrath. They compassed me about altogether. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me, and mine acquaintance into darkness. Now turn back with me to Isaiah 53. Let's read the entirety of what he said. Start in verse 6. Well, no, can't skip over verses 4 and 5. Well, better start in verse 1. Turn to Isaiah 42. No, I'm just kidding. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, the arm of the Lord is revealed to those that believe the report. For he shall grow up before him, Jesus shall grow up before his father as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word grief is sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Talking about Jesus and his work on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, the sin offering. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Now the prison and judgment has got to be where Jesus is paying the price as the scapegoat. That's where the judgment fell. Judgment does not fall on the, on, the, on the cross itself. The cross was man's judgment upon sinners or wicked men. Jesus became a curse for us through the cross. But that's not where the judgment of God fell. Jesus never ceased to be the sin offering on the cross, which means he was holy. There's a difference in something being holy and something receiving judgment, isn't there? 
He didn't receive judgment on the cross. He received judgment during the three days between the cross and the resurrection. Here where it says he was taken from prison and from judgment. What that must mean, and again we have to use our imagination a little bit on this because the Bible just gives us hints. There had to have become a moment in time when the price for eternal sin was paid. Where there was an announcement from heaven. It's finished. Not just the work on the earth is finished. The price for sin is paid. Bible says in the last verse of Romans chapter 4. Jesus was raised again for our justification. King James says. That's a poor translation. It says Jesus was raised again when we received our justification. I don't know why it was three days. But when those three days were up, there was a second, a moment in time when the price was paid and God announced from heaven, that's it. Eternal justice has been satisfied. The judgment upon the scapegoat is ended. Now what did that do for Jesus? Well, not much if it had stopped there. Because Jesus, remember, was cut off from the land of the living. He was in the prison. He was in judgment. If God doesn't do something else, then Jesus would have been eternally separated from God. I believe eternally in the lake of fire. As the sacrifice for man. And we'd have fond memories. We'd have, throughout heaven and throughout eternity, we'd be able to say, wasn't that a wonderful thing that Jesus did for us? But the Bible says that the life of God came back upon Jesus into his spirit. And Jesus became the firstborn of many brethren, the first begotten or firstborn from the dead. Now that can't be talking about physical death. See, most people look at resurrection as just Jesus being raised back to physical life. That can't be it. Jesus was not the first one born back from from physical death. Jesus himself had raised several people in his ministry. So they were before him to be raised back to physical life. Well, then what does it mean? It has to mean spiritual death. Jesus was the firstborn from the spiritually dead, those that were separated from God, eternally separated from God. Well, if Jesus was born again from the dead, that means he had to be dead. Does it mean he became unholy? Not in his life, but he became sin itself by God laying upon him the sins of all of mankind. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He was taken from prison and from judgment. What does that mean? That means, thank God, he was raised back up. Born again, raised back to life. And who shall declare his generation? I believe the ones that will declare his generation are the ones that know truly what he did and what he suffered. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. It's talking about his physical burial and his spiritual condition. 
because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. I, I, I wish they hadn't used the word please because we think of please as being something that makes a per person happy. I don't believe God was happy at all that this was the only, the only solution to spiritual death. But it did please the Lord, the Heavenly Father, and Jesus for the price to be paid for your sake and for mine. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. This word, this uh, phrase in the original language says God has made him sick. Now does that mean Jesus had cancer? No. Did he have any other sickness or disease? No. Any more than he had any other sin, personally. But remember that the work of the scapegoat is for the transgressions of the people to be laid on that lamb. And taken out into the wilderness. In the same way. Here's the Old Testament type fulfilled in Jesus. In the same way the Bible is telling us. That Jesus was made sickness. Along with being made sin. Because sickness is just a result of sin entering into the world. Before there was sin there was no sickness. Sin is the originator. The original sin is the originator. Of sickness and disease. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has made him sick. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Notice that. Make his soul an offering for sin. Now notice it doesn't say when you make his body an offering for sin. See on the cross. Jesus spirit was not made a sin offering. His body was. It doesn't tell us about the, the two goats or the two lambs that were chosen for the day of atonement. Doesn't say they have to have good attitudes or be sweet and kind. Just says their bodies have to be spotless, without blemish. Jesus' body was made the sin offering on the cross. His soul was made the offering for sin as the scapegoat, meaning his inner man, his spirit. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, his spirit. Remember, it was his spirit that was agonizing over the work of, that would be done in the three days. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Please notice that phrase. Bear their iniquities. Jesus didn't bear your sins on the cross. He bore your sins as a scapegoat. The sin offering didn't bear the sins of the people. All that was required of the sin offering was the blood to sanctify the holy place. Therefore, verse 12, Will I divide him a portion with the great? He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death. That's his spirit. That's spiritual death. That's the work of the scapegoat. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let me close with one last opening. That's in Hebrews chapter 9. 
No, make it Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now, the one sacrifice for sin that's being referred to here is the fulfillment of the Old Testament type, which was the sin offering and the scapegoat together. It wasn't a complete sacrifice or a complete offering without both. This man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be, brought, be made his footstool. For by one offering, the fulfillment of the Old Testament day of atonement. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. You know that's talking about you, don't you? He's perfected you forever. He's perfected you forever. The word perfected here means to make complete. Doesn't mean you won't ever stumble and fall. Thank God we've got an answer for that too. Just confess our sins and get right back up where we were. Whereof the Holy Ghost is also a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I believe Paul is the author of this, but whoever wrote it is inspired by the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is saying of himself, I'm the proof that you've been eternally forgiven. I'm the proof. My presence in your life, my presence upon you, for those of you that are filled with the Spirit, is the proof that the one offering was made forever. Now, folks, whatever problem you have with sin that keeps you away from God, it's your problem. It's not God's. And if you keep talking to him about where you've messed up, he doesn't remember. It's a one-sided conversation. According to the scripture, if it's up to him, you'd stop having that conversation. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I just feel so bad. Well, most people do feel bad when they sin. And that's the proof that the Holy Ghost is on the inside of them because that's conviction. So what the Holy Ghost is saying of himself is, that's the proof that you've been forgiven forever and your sins and your iniquities are no longer remembered. Now where there is remission of sins, remission means removal, the wiping away. Now where there is remission of this, these, there is no more an offering for sin. Verse 19, having therefore brethren, Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The Bible says Jesus endured all these things for the joy that was set before him. What was that? That was you being able to go into the presence of God without any sense of guilt or sin. That's the only thing that caused him to say nevertheless. Not my will, but your will be done. We know what he wanted. He wanted to find some other way. But what kept him there was the knowledge that you would be able to go into the presence of God just like he did when he was here on the earth. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In full assurance of faith. The devil wants to make you think, and he affects your feelings such, that when you and I make a mistake, that's where we want to run away from God. That's where we want to stay away for a few days until we get to feeling a little better about it. But that's exactly the place where the Holy Spirit is inspiring the writer to say, because of what Jesus has done, especially when you've missed it, run right to him. Run right to him. With a full assurance of faith. Yeah, but we feel so bad. Yeah, but you've got the word of God that says that he won't remember your sins and iniquities no more. You've got the word of God that says if you'll simply confess your sins and he's faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It takes one word. Father, forgive me. To put you right back where you were before you felt bad. Before you missed it. That's the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross and suffering as the scapegoat. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hearts hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. I think a lot of times people read that to say, Well, if I ever get to the place where I don't feel guilty, then I'll know I'm okay. That's not what it means. It means there is nothing of our conscience that should hold sin against us because we've been made righteous by the eternal blood of Jesus. Eternally righteous by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Now, we use that in anything. Hold fast the profession of your faith for healing. Hold fast the profession of your faith for finance, your provision, or whatever. But the holding fast the profession of his faith that he's talking about is your righteousness and right standing before God. Now, why would you have to hold fast the profession of that faith? Because the devil is going to try to affect your feelings to make you think you're not close to him. To try to get you to believe that you're not in fellowship with him because of the mistakes you've made. But he's saying, because Jesus has paid the price, he's made the one offering, the complete offering. Draw near. Come with boldness. You know a good prayer to pray? Father, in the name of Jesus, I missed it, and I thank you that I can still come boldly before you. Most of us try to slink slink through the side door and say, "Lord, Lord, I missed it. You know how I messed up. That's not what he's talking about. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times and gets up. It doesn't say a righteous man doesn't fall. It says a righteous man gets up every time he does. How does he get up? By coming boldly before the throne of grace. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching.
folks, I know some people have a hard time with the idea that Jesus died spiritually. That Jesus went to hell. In my thinking, it was even worse than that. I believe Jesus experienced a second death. But maybe not. Maybe I'm just misreading it. But the idea that he did makes me appreciate him even more, not less. To think that he died a, de a death that was more than even I would have died for myself makes me appreciate him even more. Some people have a hard time with that. And I think, from the experience that I've had and from things that I've read, I think the reason for that is they think we're taking away from the purity or the holiness of Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was 100% holy. He stayed holy until he was made sin for you and for me. And that's what he was willing to lay aside. That's what he was willing to go to the cross for and complete the, the sacrifice. He was willing to give up his own eternal life. You know, Paul said something similar about the Jews. He said, if it were possible, I'd give up my own salvation so that they would be saved. Well, I'm glad he didn't have the opportunity to make that choice for real. But it's showing his love and his care for his fellow men, his countrymen. Even though they were persecuting him and trying to destroy him. But Jesus faced it for real. I believe that's what he's sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane over. Thank God he did it. Thank God he did it. You know what that means? That means now that you have an open door. A forever open door to the presence of the Father. For whatever you need. Paul wrote to us, understanding these truths. If God didn't withhold Jesus from us, what is he going to hold back from you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for all that you chose to do. Willingly accepted on our behalf. As we wait in your presence for just a moment, Lord, I thank you that the Holy Ghost is speaking to people's hearts. Speaking to our hearts about how much you love us. Speaking to our hearts about your care and concern for our well-being in every area. Speaking to our hearts about the authority that we have over the devil and all of his works. Father, we don't want to take anything for granted this morning. There may be some here that don't know you as Lord and Savior. There may be some here that have not accepted Jesus' sacrifice as their own. I want to thank you, Father, that you made it so easy for us. All we had to do was say we believe that Jesus died for us and that you raised him from the dead. And then confess him as our Lord and Savior. That's all there is to it. What a wonderful change it brought into our lives. It made us new. The guilt of sin was washed away. We became new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around, if you're here this morning would say, Pastor Mike, you just described me. I may have heard about Jesus before, but I never made a decision for him for myself. I don't know with a certainty 
that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. God wants you to have that certainty. He wants you to know. If you're here this morning and say, Pastor Mike, that's me. And I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Would you lift your hands right now? By lifting your hand, you're not joining the church. By lifting your hand, you're just asking for help in prayer. To give your heart and your life to Jesus once and for all. If that's your desire, please lift your hand now. There's somebody here that God's trying to get to. We'll wait just a moment for you. All right. I regret that you didn't make that choice. It's the best decision you could ever make. But that doesn't mean it's too late for you. I would urge you to talk to somebody and pray with them and enter into this new life that's available only through accepting the sacrifice of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. Let's all stand together, please. Let's just close this morning by lifting our hands and thanking God for all he's done for us. Father, we worship you. Lord Jesus, we magnify you. Thank you for being willing to offer not only your body and your blood, but your spirit as a sacrifice for us. We can only imagine the horrors that you experienced as you paid the price of judgment for all mankind. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were wounded for our transgressions. You were bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, our well-being in every area, financially, financially included, was upon you. And with your stripes, we were healed. We thank you, Lord, that you paid the price for sin and sickness and well-being in every area. You made us complete, perfect before you. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for what you did. We rejoice in your resurrection and what that's brought unto us. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. We love every one of you. Have a great day and come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. And you're dismissed.